The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Well, tonight we come to Ephesians chapter 4. It's page 978 in the Pew Bibles. And we come to the end of our series on the fruit of the Spirit. We come to the last of those fruits, self-control. If you don't watch out, self-control can really get out of control. And the Incratites, the Incratites were a second century ascetic and heretical group that forbade meat, wine, and marriage from their followers. It sounds like a real fun group to be around. Um, <clears throat> if you've ever heard of H.L. Mencken's unfair and really untrue criticism of the Puritans, where Mencken says that Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. That may apply more to the Incratites. Sounds a lot like this group. But, you see, the thing is, the word Incratite comes from the same Greek word that is translated in Galatians 5.23 as self-control. It's the Greek word Incratea. So what's the difference? What's the difference between something that is, on the one hand, a heresy, the Encratites, and on the other hand, it's a fruit of the Spirit, Encratia. Well, we know what it is. It's grace, and it's Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit. And it turns out, though, that when it comes to self-control, we need a lot of self-control. And self-control is one of those virtues that seems most like it could fit in with some of the modern notions of of wellness or mindfulness or something like that. It sounds like something you would hear about along the lines of self-help or self-care or self-improvement, but that's not what this is. Self-control is not about don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. It's about freedom It's the freedom to put to death the passions and the desires of the flesh. It's the freedom to enjoy the fullness of the life that we have in Christ Jesus. So we want to turn our attention tonight to self-control, a self-control that is distinctly a fruit of the Spirit and that is a force for good in the life of God's people. And so let's turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 4 We'll begin reading in verse 17. I want us to to see four things tonight. This will be our outline for this passage, with all apologies to Dr. Seuss. Our four points will be old self, new self, myself, and yourself. Um, Those will be our four points. Myself, old self, new self, myself, yourself. Before we read God's word, let's pray and ask God's help uh, to apply his word to our hearts and to our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, our ears, our minds. We we come to you at the very beginning, uh, thinking about self-control. We confess that we lack self-control. We lack self-control so much that our minds would wander all over the place. And we would be so easily distracted and think something else from what you are trying to teach us and to apply to us tonight. We need your spirit 
to be controlled in how we hear and how we handle your word. We need your spirit to hear Christ coming from the pages of Scripture. And so we ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts tonight and that through your word you would produce self-control in our lives. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. There are actually a lot of parallels, a number of parallels between this passage and a passage that we studied a few weeks ago when we thought about patience from Colossians chapter 3. But what we, we find Paul saying here as elsewhere is that the way of the natural man, the way of the old self, is inclined towards all sorts of destructive behaviors. Paul says that the way of the Gentiles is the way of futility of the mind. It's the way of a darkened understanding. In verse 18, he says, it's the way of a hardness of heart. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In other words, the natural man will always eventually choose the desires of his sinful nature. In other words, there is nothing easy about self-control, and we know that. Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians in verse 22, put off your old self, put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off your old self. There's an old skit with the comedian Bob Newhart 
and it's oftentimes talked about in counseling and therapy circles. And uh, in this skit, Newhart plays a psychiatrist named Dr. Switzer. <clears throat> There's a client that comes into his office, and she has a problem that she's been dealing with for a number of years. It, it wreaks havoc in, her, havoc in her life. It causes her to panic. And he has a simple solution to it. He says, I, w- my solution to your problem can be summarized in two words. You ready? Two words. Stop it. <laughs> he says, you don't want to live the rest of your life like that, do you? Then stop it. Just stop it. And she tries to tell him, I've been dealing with this for, for many years since I was a child. He, st- he says, no, no, no. We don't get into all that. Just stop it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Just stop it doesn't work. But a lot of times that's how we think about self-control. We think that we have the capacity for self-control. We think that all we need to do is to try harder or to try better. We think that we need 10 strategies for uh, developing self-control, or maybe we need the top five books on self-discipline. But you see, the problem is so much bigger than that. We can't tame our sinful nature. We don't have the strength, we don't have the willpower deep down within us to resist temptation, to to fight off certain urges and to make good choices. Deep down, we are powerless. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't develop good habits and, and produce some positive outcomes. It just means that the motivation and the aim of those actions are ultimately controlled by our sinful nature, and they are directed inwardly. And what we oftentimes find is when we, when we pursue self-control by the flesh or by the old self, you can tell that it doesn't work because it, it's not, uh, it does not partner with the other fruit of the Spirit. And how often do we see someone who may grow or develop some sense of self-discipline, and yet it's without love? It's without patience. You see, it doesn't work. And ultimately, those things are not pleasing to God. They they do not hold up. There is a futility to the old self. In fact, when it comes to self-control, there is a whole different definition when it comes to the Bible than what we see in the practices and the disciplines of this world. Because it starts with the difference between the old self and the new self. You see, what it means to trust in Christ is what it says in verse 22 and verse 24. It means to put off your old self and to put on your new self. There's this huge difference between those two things. We can't miss that from the very start, thinking about self-control, is the futility of the old self. There's the old self to put away in Christ and to put on, then, the new self. Have you ever heard of the, the marshmallow test? The marshmallow test was an experiment that was done around 1970. And the basic premise of the experiment was to test self-control in four-year-olds. And so what was done, a facilitator would leave a four-year-old in a room with a marshmallow on the table. And the child was told that, that he could eat the marshmallow whenever he wanted, but if he waited the 15 minutes until the facilitator came back into the room he would get two marshmallows. And so this child with this marshmallow in, in front of it would, would do all sorts of things to try to resist. The, the, the children would squirm, they would cover their eyes, they would cover the marshmallow, they would look 
all over the, the room and other places, but a lot of them, as you would expect, ate it within a minute. Uh, some of them were able to wait about five minutes. But what makes the marshmallow test famous, what makes it compelling today, and what, what the reason you may have heard about it, is that the experimenter went back with these children years later when they were adults and looked at their lives over, over the long the span of their lives. And what they found, what he found was that those who had waited the 15 minutes for the second marshmallow had lower body fat and were less likely to do drugs. They scored better on the SAT. And that makes it pretty compelling. You might do the marshmallow test with your own children and see about whether you need to start saving for college or not. But there was a problem with, there was a problem with the test, and, and researchers have since found that it was flawed in some of its uh, background, and, and, and there were other factors at work. It's not so simple as that. But you see, the marshmallow test highlights something. And I think it highlights the reason that most people value self-control. It's for success. Self-control is the way to do well. Self-control is the way to prosper. Self-control is a means of personal achievement. In fact, I think that the pursuit of self-control is oftentimes just a manifestation of the desire for just control. And we oftentimes think that if, uh, if, we, can, if we can control our kids' bedtimes and their diets and their activities, then they're going to turn out okay. We, th- we think the same thing about ourselves, don't we? We think that if if we control our eating and our sleeping and our exercise, then things will turn out well. Self-control becomes about success. But that's not the way it is with the new self. The new self isn't about success. The new self, the life of Christ, the life of God and the soul of man, it's about Christ. David talked about it this morning. The scope of Scripture is what? It's Christ. Well, the scope of self-control is Christ. And the contrast in these verses between the old self and the new self, the the contrast between the the way of the Gentiles and the way of the Christians is the way of Christ. Look at verse 20. He says, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. You see, it's knowing Christ. That is what it means to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Trusting in Christ, resting in Him, putting off the old self, putting on the new self. It's being renewed in the spirit of our minds. It means being renewed in Christ, and that means being renewed in righteousness and holiness, as verse 24 talks about. You see, that's the difference between the secular virtue of self-control and the Christian virtue of self-control. You see, the Apostle Paul, he, he didn't make up the word for self-control. It was already there in the Greek language, and it had already been written about by, by the philosophers, by, uh, by Socrates and Aristotle and, and Philo. They, they wrote about, they taught about self-control. But what sets self-control in Paul apart from those is Christ. And with Christ, there is a whole new ability for self-control. And with Christ, there is a whole new motivation for self-control. There is a whole new aim and direction and goal for self-control, and it's about Him. It's about Christ Jesus. 
Self-control, you see, it's not a means of salvation. It's a consequence of salvation. It's an outcome of the relationship that we have with Christ. And it's a fruit of the Spirit of Christ in a believer's life. Now, does that look like success? Maybe, but not necessarily. In fact, that's not even the right question to ask. The right question is, does it look like Jesus? Does it look like righteousness and holiness? Does it mean trying and seeking to please God with all of our being in all of our circumstances? What, our, our call to worship, Romans chapter 12, our, a, being a living sacrifice, our, our bodies offered to God, our whole bodies, our whole selves. And that's the third point that we want to see tonight is not just old self, new self, but myself. Paul says in these verses not to walk as the Gentiles do, but to walk in the way that you learned Christ. Then he says, therefore. Therefore, this is what it means to walk in newness of life. This is what it means to have self-control. It means to put away falsehood and to speak the truth, verse 25. It means to watch your anger and to give no opportunity to the devil, verse 26 and 27. It means to no longer steal, but to labor and to do honest work, verse 28. It means putting away corrupting talk and instead building others up, verse 29. In other words, Paul is concerned about the whole self. He's he's concerned about mind and body. He's concerned about speech and emotions. He's concerned about word and deed. He's concerned about actions and motivations. Actually, God is concerned about those things. God is concerned about the whole self. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. With your whole being, love and serve the Lord. I have a friend who, who thinks that before an Olympic event, they should get just some normal person, like bring somebody out of the crowd to, to do the event. To, to run the race or what, to perform whatever it is. Because you see, the, the Olympic athletes, they make hard things look so easy. And if you could have some normal person do it first, I mean, if, you, if, if I were to do the ski jump or the pole vault, <laughs> I would die. <laughs> in fact, I'm not even sure that I would volunteer to carry the flag in in the opening ceremonies because <laughs> that thing looks pretty heavy. But you see, these athletes, these Olympic athletes, they've trained their minds, they've trained their bodies with such care and with such precision that they can perform it to the utmost of their abilities. They can perform it almost with ease because they they have disciplined themselves. They've engaged everything to do these amazing athletic feats. And Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You see, Corinth was, it was the home of the Isthmian Games. And every year in Corinth would come these athletes from around Greece to to compete in events like wrestling and boxing and running. It was similar to the Olympic Games. And they would compete for this, for for the prestigious awards, uh, for things like a a crown of of celery, apparently, which... I don't know what that was about, but they would, compare, they would compete for these, these awards, for honor, for, uh, for the top prizes uh, of being an athlete. And Paul says in, 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Do you hear what he says there? To show self-control in all things. And that's what it means to live the new life in Christ. It includes the whole self. And nothing in ourselves is untouched by the need to bring it into subjection to Christ. It calls for self-control in everything. It calls for self-control in what we think and how we feel and what we say and how we act. But in doing that, like the athlete, it frees us up to be free. It frees us up to be fruitful, to be whole. You see, self-control involves the whole self for a whole self. It's living in a way that God has designed us to live. It's living in a way that God has redeemed us to live. In fact, you notice in verse 30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's what he's saying other places about walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. If we live in the way that God has designed us and redeemed us to live, then that's going to bring us ultimately the most enjoyment and satisfaction. And you know what else it will do? It's going to direct us outward. It will direct us outwardly. And that's the last thing I want us to notice about self-control is that it's others-oriented. Old self, new self, myself, yourself. Did you notice how in each of the instructions in verses 25 to 29, the point is about how we treat others? Paul is saying, watch your speech. Care for your emotions. Look out for your actions so that we can love each other, so that you can love your neighbor. He says in verse 25, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Verse 26, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, be quick to forgive. Be quick to reconcile with each other. Verse 28, he says, To do honest work so that you may have something to share with those who are in need. Verse 29 Our speech is to build up so that it can give grace to those who hear it. You see, there are two sides to the token of self-control. It's not just a private matter. It's not individualistic and self-focused. It's actually selfless. Self-control is to be selfless. Look at verse 31 and 32. It's a, a great summary of all that's being said here. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And, so there's put away certain things, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, so oftentimes self-control can seem like a negative activity. It can seem like it's merely restrictive. And it is in a sense. But there's a positive side to it. There's a positive side to self-control, and it's a giving of self. It's a doing for others. And in that way, I think self-control makes a very fitting conclusion to the fruit of the Spirit. And I wonder if you've noticed, well, chapter 5, verse 2 says, walk in love. I wonder if you've noticed how as we've walked through the different fruit of the Spirit, how each one of them is 
really comes from, it flows from, is motivated by, and carried out by love. You, you have to have love for all of the fruit of the Spirit. Love leads to and is an integral part of joy and peace and patience and kindness. You need love. Actively showing love is what it means to be self-controlled. But do you know what else is true? Self-control leads to and is a fundamental part of gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and kindness and on back down the list. We we need self-control in order to walk in love. We need self-control in order to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit of love. Uh, a car person can, can correct me on this, but I think it's something like a, a car battery, that we need a battery in order to crank the car, but as the car runs, it actually recharges the battery. And it's almost like love causes all the fruit of the Spirit to run, and then self-control is there to come back through. It perpetuates all the fruit of the Spirit. It gives us perseverance in these fruit as we seek to exhibit them to one another. Self-control is as much about others as it is about ourselves. It's not just me, but it's you also. It's like what Christ has done for us. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Self-control is... It's not about our natural willpower or ability, our old self, but it's about the new self in Christ, and it's about the whole self, and it's about service to others. But that still leaves us with a question. How do we practice self-control? And so often I think what we want is a list of things to do rather than examining our whole lives. But here's the thing, more than just being about what we do, it's about who we are. And who we are begins with believing the gospel. So as we think about self-control, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the gospel in such a way that your life is shaped by it? In other words, that your, your life is not shaped by trying to get the most pleasure out of this particular moment. Your life is not shaped by, by what you can achieve or what you can succeed, but your life is shaped by forgiveness and humility, freedom, and a love for Christ who gave himself up for you so that you may live. Is your life lived out of resurrection power through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if that is so, then the gospel will shape our loves and our affections. We'll love the things of Christ more than the things of this world, more than the things that our natural hearts desire. It's what Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection, that the love for Christ will displace those loves that dishonor God. And we will want to honor God and not indulge ourselves with the choices and decisions that we make. See, believing the gospel puts us in a posture of humility. And then it puts us in a posture of service to others. And if we live that way, if we live in a way 
that shows love for Christ, that is motivated and centered on love for Christ, that, that is humble towards ourselves and that is in service to others, then self-control will come. Not perfectly, not without its failures, but it's the way that the Spirit sanctifies us over the course of our whole lives, of living in love for Christ, humility towards ourselves, and service to one another. As we come to the Lord's Supper tonight, the Lord's Supper is a way to impress those truths, the truths of the gospel, upon our hearts. That here we see the sacrifice that Jesus made, the way he loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We see the forgiveness and the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, both now and forever. We enjoy the fellowship with God and with one another, and we are shown hope that we do these things until he comes. You see, there is, a, there is greater blessing, there is greater happiness in the blessings of the gospel and the blessings that Christ has secured for us and provided for us so much greater than anything that, that any momentary pleasure can provide for us in this world. So let's turn ourselves to this table tonight as we come to the conclusion of the fruit of the Spirit. Let's taste and see again the goodness of God to us in Christ Jesus so that we might live our lives in dependence upon the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we might shape our lives in love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's come to this table, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Our Father, as our, our minds and our hearts have reflected over these last several weeks, on the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit, would you help us again as we approach the communion table to, to be struck again by the beauty of Christ and the way in which he manifested each of these fruit in his own life in perfection and beauty. And even as we examine our own hearts and see the ways in which we are so prone to fail and so easily we fail to show self-control. And yet, in our failure and in our sin, you loved us and you gave your Son for us. Even in our failure and our sin, help us to see your love. And in seeing your love, help us to love you more and to seek to honor you more with self-control in our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.